Let's go to the scriptures today. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans twelve nine through 21. Lord, I pray that now you would speak from your word through me to us what you want us to hear and apply to our lives. In Jesus' name. Brandon Burlesworth was a no-name kid from a small town in Arkansas. He was overweight and under-athletic, but he had a dream to play Division I football for the University of Arkansas. He worked hard enough in high school to earn a spot as a walk-on at the university. No scholarship. The general consensus when he showed up at practice by his coaches and teammates was, this kid will never see the field. Brandon was a Christian. His roommates and teammates would go out and party, and he would stay back, focusing on his playbook, his schoolwork, and his Bible. His low position on the team and his lack of social life led to bullying and harassment from his teammates and roommates, but Brandon never retaliated. There's a story one of his roommates tells. They come back from partying, and there's Brandon studying, and he begins to make fun of him, saying, I don't know how you stay here when we're out having fun. And Brandon, without retaliating, simply reached up on his desk, grabbed his Bible, held it up, put it back, and proceeded Things eventually changed for Brandon. He became a starter on the football team, and he earned the respect of his teammates and roommates. 
who eventually began to be his closest friends and attend Bible study with Brandon. Brandon became an All-American, and he was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts to play in the NFL. But 11 days later, he was killed in a car accident. Although Brandon lost his life, his story and his legacy lives on. His jersey was retired. His locker was encased. Each year, the Burlesworth Trophy is awarded to the best college football player that began as a walk-on. Maybe you've heard of Baker Mayfield was the recipient of that. His family began a youth foundation in his honor. And there is a movie that I highly recommend, one of my favorites, called Greater. I believe it's available on Netflix. And his family receives countless emails weekly about how this movie is impacting and changing lives around the world. I want us to keep the story of Brandon in mind as we dive into this scripture today. So before we get into this scripture, we have to look at the context. We're in Romans chapter 12, and you may or may not know Romans 1 through 11 is a rich theology of the gospel of Jesus. You can study it on your own. We won't get into it. But Romans 12 begins a shift into the more practical application. So 1 through 11 is all about the gospel, but Romans 12 shifts into how does this apply to our lives, our communities. And in Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, whoa, there is a plea that we would offer everything we have to serve God with our gifts in community. In light of all that God has done, would we offer everything to him? And that brings us to our text today. And the first thing Paul says is that love must be sincere. Why does Paul say this first? Because I think Paul is aware that we could try really hard to serve God, that we could come to church, come to growth group, come to communities. We could even use our gifts of preaching or singing or leadership or administration. And we could do all that and work really hard at it, but not be transformed in the way that we love one another. Anyone can stand up here and preach and then go home and cuss out their family or their coworkers. Paul says, love must be sincere. It lines up with what he says in 1 Corinthians 13, that if I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, 
but I do not have love, I gain nothing. You could work super hard in the church. You could give all your money. You could even give your life. But if you're not transformed by love, Paul tells us we gain nothing. He knows that our love for God is actually measured by the way we love others. In the way that when Jesus was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, or similar to it, or bound to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets, which at that time was the whole Bible, hang on this commandment, these two commandments. You, we, we can't say that we love God if we don't love the people around us. And, and non-believers may get excited about that. They may say, you Christians are so judgmental and you don't love people. I just love my neighbor. But remember the two commandments are bound together that, that Jesus says we can't actually love our neighbor the way that God desires and intends if we don't love God. First and foremost, the two are bound together. And I think in this we find a theme of two commandments that are bound together that we see next in the text. It says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Again, we can't do one without doing the other. Recently in our country, Roe versus Wade was overturned. And if you use social media, you'll be aware that there is just a polarization and a war on social media around this topic. And one critique of the pro-life side is these people, they just want to control. They don't actually care about people because they don't support any policies that maybe would help vulnerable women who are having children. Uh, whether or not that's true is not my point. It is a critique. But what if Christians were known for hating what is evil and clinging to what is good? Hating the ending of, of life, but loving adoption, loving policies that would give resources to vulnerable women, um, helping in a sacrificial way. This morning, actually, before I came here, I saw a post, and it said, hey, if you are considering uh, ending the life of an unborn child, message me, please. I, we will adopt your child. What if Christians were known for hating what is evil 
end clinging to what is good. James put it this way. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Again, James is saying two things that we should do that we can't do one without the other. If we simply try and resist the devil, we'll be left with an empty religion where we just try not to sin and miss out on God's goodness. But if we try and and pursue God, but we don't resist our sin, we'll get in the way of our relationship with him. One of my favorite rappers, Andy Mineo, in a song called Every Word, says, putting on new, taking off old. If I only take off, I'll be waking up cold. We're not meant to simply resist the devil without pursuing what God has for us. It goes on to say, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. And as I read this, I wondered, so am I supposed to sit around and wait for my problems to be resolved? Wait for good things to come my way and pray about it and try and be joyful? Is that what this is saying? I was reminded reminded of a friend who came to me once and said, I've been praying for months and I still don't have a car. <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, you've been praying, that is a good step. Have you gotten your license? Have you been car shopping? Have you been saving? Have you been looking at insurance policies? Do we just sit around and pray and hope and try and be joyful? I like what uh, Australian theologian Leon Morris says in response to this verse. He says, patient denotes not a passive putting up with things, but an active, steadfast endurance. We are meant to pursue to resolve our conflicts that we have. We're meant to pursue what God has for us and be patient in the pursuit, not to sit around and wait. So I think in the rest of this text, we get a good list of do's and don'ts in the way that we relate to one another. And we'll get there, but I wanted to look at a couple other passages, I believe, that can often be misunderstood and misapplied. And the first is this. Verse 17, it says, Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace. To everyone. But what do we say to somebody in a situation of abuse that can be 
in a marriage, that could be in your workplace, and just any relationship. Unfortunately, the Bible has been used occasionally to tell people just to stay in that situation and, and just pray and be joyful and just endure the abuse. And if you have ever been told that or taught that, I'm sorry, and I don't believe that's what this is saying. In fact, I don't believe this is a command to endure abuse because it says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, that assumes it may not be possible. And God's desire for you may be to exit a situation. So if you have been taught that, I'm sorry. And I, my hope and prayer is that uh, you would see that's not what the scripture is saying. And then there's verse 19 and 20. It says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? Do I want to be heaping burning coals on people's head? Um, one way that this could be read is I'm going to give food to my enemy and I'm going to wish the worst upon this person. I don't like my neighbor, so I'm going to bring them a plate of brownies and hope that their house burns down. Is that what this is saying to us? I don't believe so. When, when something like this happens, where it seems the way we could read it does not align with God's heart, as we know in the rest of the Bible, we have to dig a little deeper and look at the historical and the cultural context. And I did find about six different interpretations Lots of scholars have taken a stab at this, and some of them are different, but none of them say what, like what I said. Um, so here's one that I thought gave an insightful interpretation, and there, there are other valid interpretations, so just know this isn't the only one. Um, is this a command to do good and which the worst? I would say no. There are two scriptures, Ezekiel 10 and Revelation 8. You can look at them on your own. We're not going to go into it too much here. But in both these scriptures, there's a vision of fire being thrown down from heaven onto the earth, onto the people. Why? It's a warning of judgment. 
And we know throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are warning the people, hey, you are living wrong. You are not honoring God. You're not caring about the poor. You're participating in injustice and idol worship. And judgment is coming. This happens all throughout the Old Testament. But God's warnings of judgments often come with what? A plea to repent. The prophets say, hey, judgment is coming. What are you guys doing? But if you would repent, if you would just repent and turn and change, turn back to God, you could avoid the judgment. So this fire being thrown down on the heads of the people is warning them of judgment and is pleading for repentance. And I believe that to be a great picture of what's being described here in this scripture and that your acts of kindness towards your enemies, they do two things. They warn them of judgment. They show them they're in the wrong. If I am wronging you and you are responding to me with the acts of kindness, it's going to further convict me that I'm in the wrong. And two, it's going to offer me an opportunity to repent. It's going to offer me a chance to say, hey, I'm sorry, and to change. And that is one way to understand what it means to heap burning coals on people's heads. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing you're, you're offering them an opportunity to change through acts of kindness. Will they take that opportunity? I don't know. But you at least are in charge of offering it. Paul gives us a good list of do's and don'ts for Christians in the way that we relate to one another. My slide format got messed up here, but let's just look at them. Do practice hospitality. Do bless those who persecute you. Do rejoice and mourn with others. Live in harmony, which I find interesting because it's natural to rejoice when our friends rejoice. It's also natural to rejoice when our enemies mourn. But this scripture is in the context of our enemies. It's saying, hey, even when your enemies rejoice, seek to be in harmony with them. Do what is right in the eyes of all. Live at peace with all as it depends on you. Leave room for God's wrath. Give food and drinks to your enemies. That's very practical. Overcome evil with good. And now the don'ts are very synonymous. Do not curse your enemies. Do not be too proud to associate with lowly people. 
Um, do not be conceited. My remote is, uh, there we go. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge. Do not be overcome by evil. I know that's a lot and I'm running through it, but my question is what if Christians were known by this list? What if when I went on social media, I could leave room for God's wrath? I wouldn't have to feel a need to unleash God's wrath on those who disagree with me politically or theologically. Or if I was in traffic and when someone cuts me off, I, I want to bless them. Or if I'm at work and I have that annoying coworker who's always uh, doing something that negatively impacts me, what if my goal was just to overcome evil with good? There's a German theologian who coined a framework for the fundamental way that we approach relationships. And he said, we can approach people as an I-thou or an I-it. An I-it meaning we see somebody similar to an object. We wonder, how can we use this person? What can we gain from an interaction with them? We seek to experience, have an experience with this person, and then essentially to put it in the past to be done with them. As we're in I-thou relationship, we, we see someone else as a whole person that, that we want to be present with. Instead of experiencing them, we want to have a relationship with them. And I wonder if the reason that we can be so dissatisfied in relationships with family, with friends, with coworkers, that we may have unhealthy, unresolved conflict or problems. Part of it could be, do we take a fundamentally wrong approach in our relationships? Do we go in thinking, what can I gain? Or do we seek people out and say, how can I be present? with this person. Going back here to our list of do's and don'ts, how could this change the way that you interact with your family, your friends, the people in your life if these were your goals in every relationship? How would that change? Um... I think a tendency that we often have is to want to change the fruit in our lives. Maybe you have some bad fruit in your life. Uh, you have some unhealthy conflict or you have a, a particular problem with a certain person or even with yourself, but Jesus says in Matthew 7, he says, every 
good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. A bad tree can't bear good fruit. So I just wonder if instead of focusing always on the fruit, if we sought to change the tree. If I'm in conflict with somebody, instead of just thinking all the ways that they have wronged me and how I could uh, get revenge, what if we said, I'm going to look internally? How am I approaching the relationship? How, how have I contributed to this conflict and what could I do? What, what if we sought to change the tree and the fruit would change as a byproduct? And maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you have some bad fruit in your life. Maybe, you know, our world wants to change everything with, with a medication or a therapy, which are not bad things. But maybe you, you just have some bad fruit in your life that you've been trying to change. But today could be your day to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and change internally that would lead to some good fruit in your life. I love the story of Brandon Burlesworth, and here is why. It's one thing to, to preach, to sing, to be a leader in the church and to have everyone thinking you're a great person, a great leader, a, a great Christian. But, but we just know too many stories of the big personality leader who behind doors was abusing people. And, and everyone close to this person knew that they really weren't what they seemed to be. But the story of Brandon, it was his consistent character, his refusal to repay evil for evil that brought change to those who were in close proximity to him. The people that witnessed him every day, that were his roommates, his teammates, and the, the significant impact he made on their lives. And sure, he, he's been honored, he's had a movie made about him that's impacting people, but the greatest impact he made was on the people closest to him. One of his Roommates is quoted saying, I know nobody is perfect, but Brandon was as close to perfect as anyone can get. I just wonder what our neighbors, what our families, what our, the, the, our teammates, coworkers, the people closest to us 
might say. And the way that we represent Christ in our most dear, close relationships aligns with what we say we believe. And how can we do it? Um, how can we do this? If my remote works. This is hard, right? It's hard. But who said that it would be easy? And as a Christian, who do we say that we follow? Jesus, right? He's the ultimate example of leaving a high position, coming down to be humbled, serving people, even giving his life up for his enemies. That's who we say we follow. And, and you may say, that's Jesus. Not me, though. But as a Christian, you're not allowed to say that. Because Jesus also rose from the dead, and when we put faith in him, we have the same spirit that he had living inside us. Empowering us to be like him. So, so no, you can't say, well, that's great for Jesus, but not me. This is what we are seeking to become. And the legacy that we leave behind will be the way that we love God and then love our neighbors. So if you'll pray with me, Lord, would you help us to live in a way that would honor you, a way that you desire to relate even to our enemies in a way that represents you? Would you help us, lead us, and guide us? In Jesus' name, amen.